I'd like to direct our thinking to the word tradition. The word tradition via a 14th century poem, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. And then secondly this morning, I would like to direct our thinking to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 to 21. And with that passage, I'd like to direct our thinking to newness. So this morning, tradition and newness, that's where I hope we will go. Now, at the outset, thank you. <laughs> thank you for your willingness to try to live through the labyrinth and the confusion of Stan's mind. And it is there. And at the outset, I will warn you <laughs> that I might lose you somewhere along the way. If I do, it's not a question about who you are. It's a question about who I am. But if I do lose you, don't leave. Wait until the end, and I will try to, try to tie all the threads together. Tradition. Newness. Now, I recognize that we Protestant, Reformed Presbyterians view tradition with suspicion, and rightly so. In part, the Reformation of the 16th century occurred because many traditional elements or accretions had been added to the Christian faith. So much so that there was this hue and cry that finally came, we must return to the fundamental historic traditions of our faith. Those traditions that focused especially upon Jesus' death and resurrection. Those traditions that understood that we have eyewitness accounts of real people in real time and space, historic people who proclaimed he died and he rose. These are those essential traditions that are dear to each of us. Now, if we think about tradition for a moment, this room is filled with traditional elements. In fact, I think we still do. What do we call this room? Oh, bless your hearts, yes. Sanctuary, a Latin word meaning a holy space. Tradition. Over, we have an advent wreath, green, made from boughs of a tree, a circle. Huh, that's interesting, never has an end. A white candle in the middle, the Christ candle, white, purity, purple candles, signifying royalty, the pink candle, a tribute to Mary. We have a manger. We have a tree, perhaps Martin Luther's contribution, the evergreen tree, to remind us that life in Christ, his salvation, is forever. We have stars, star of Bethlehem. We have candles. These are all wonderful 
traditional elements that remind us of what is true. Tradition. Our word tradition, our English word tradition, and if I could have a slide, that, okay, there it is, all right. Our English word tradition comes from the Latin word trotto. Oh, go ahead and say it. You wanted to practice Latin this morning, right? Trotto, go ahead. Oh, come on, trotto. One more time, trotto. It, we, we have that in English as also the word trade. That word means to, to give up, to, to hand over, to surrender, to betray. That Latin word in the New Testament, Greek New Testament, paradosis is the Greek word, has that same meaning, to hand over, to surrender. The irony within the New Testament is that the tradition bearers, the religious leaders, people like me, were the ones who in fact handed over, arrested, betrayed Jesus, the Messiah. Now, given these initial thoughts with regard to tradition, I have a question for you this morning, and it is this. When you were growing up, and I know that there are a few of you here still growing up at home, but when you were growing up, what did your family eat or have for Thanksgiving dinner? When you were growing up, what did your family eat or have for Thanksgiving dinner. Now, I think you know me well enough. I want you to turn to your neighbor. I want you to ask this question and answer this question with your neighbor. What did you have? What did you eat for your Thanksgiving dinner? I'll give you a minute to ask and answer. Do it. I'll tell you in a moment. <laughs> That's a fair question. Did you talk about Thanksgiving dinners? Of course. Okay. So, well, thank you very much. We hadn't lived terribly long within the Boston world when it became clear to us that at least Bostonians, if not New Englanders, for their traditional Thanksgiving dinner, it regularly included lasagna, and meatball and spaghetti. That was traditional for them. Somewhere over the years, I heard of, of a family that part of their tradition was to have butterscotch pie for Thanksgiving. When I was growing up, and here's, 
fair response. When I was growing up, uh, we always had cinnamon rolls and shrimp cocktail. I grew up in California, so go figure. <laughs> Tradition. Traditions abound. And from my perspective, we dare not be afraid of tradition. If you will now, please, let's take a moment and pray with one another. Living Lord, we ask that within these moments, we might hear from you. Give us hearts and minds that are in tune with yours. And when we do hear what we hear, give us the will to act as you ask of us. Please, this is our prayer. We ask in your great and wonderful name. Amen. When Jerry invited me to share with you on this morning, New Year's Day, immediately, immediately my mind turned to, to Sir Gowan and the Green Knight. And so already you know this is a strange mind, right? Sir Gowan and the Green Knight, a 14th century poem, a legendary poem dealing with King Arthur, filled with, with magic. This poem is centered upon a tension, a tension between what we might call court law, that is the law of the courts, that is the law of kings and queens, that is the law of courtesy, court, courtesy, courtesans, all related. It is the tension between that law and divine law. Now, we don't have time this morning to, to move into that tension, except to say that as I thought about it, that really is a very contemporary tension. We're not, in our culture, concerned about courtesy. But within the business world, or the medical world, or the academic world, there are laws, there are procedures, there are standards, there are implicit and explicit social ways of relating. And so this poem then deals with that tension until it comes to the moment, when does one law, the obedience to one law, necessitate the breaking of another law in the business world. At what moment do we say that law will necessitate breaking divine law or vice versa? That's where the poem goes. But for our purposes this morning, I was reminded that the storyline of, of Sir Gowan and the Green Knight, and I think we have a Oh, there. Isn't that wonderful? And there are, there are a couple more yet to come, too. Sir Gowan and the Green Knight, this 14th century poem, its storyline begins as, as the Green Knight intrudes 
upon King Arthur and his round table as they are celebrating New Year's Day. The Green Knight then challenged King Arthur and his knights with this. And by the way, again, the green, the green Knight is all green. Green horse, green armor, green hair. So there's, there's this magical element within the legend. Sir Gowan, or sorry, the Green Knight then challenged Arthur and the knights present I will lay bare my neck, the Green Knight said, to the sword of any knight here. If a year hence that same knight will bear his neck to my blade on New Year's Day. Sir Gowan rose to the challenge and did, as the Green Knight said. And this is a little grim, I understand, particularly on New Year's Day. But the Green Knight then picked up his head, mounted his steed, and rode off in the distance with the full expectation that Sir Gawain, an honorable, a godly, a Christian, a Christ-centered knight would do what he said he would do. The expectation then, a year later, Sir Gowan would lay bare his neck to the blade of the Green Knight. Sir Gowan and the Green Knight that poem rests upon a tradition that marked Jesus' birth as December 25th. But it also rested upon a tradition that saw March 25th as the first day of a new year. March 25th, the Annunciation to Mary that she would bear Messiah also rests upon a tradition that on the eighth day after his birth, Jesus was circumcised. Circumcision, a cut in flesh and blood to honor and to remember the covenant that the Lord God made with Abram, with Abraham, a covenant to be fulfilled in Jesus' blood and cross. January 1st, for the author of Sir Gowan, and we don't know who that author was, January 1st, in the Middle Ages was this reminder of that cut in blood, this reminder of a covenant that the Lord God had made with Abram, a covenant fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus.
Now, if you will accept that theological shift I just made, I invite you now to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1, or sorry, verses 14 to 21. Listen now to and for the word of God as it comes to us from 2 Corinthians. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we no longer regard one another according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, making God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Are you still with me? We've got the green knight over there somewhere, right? Okay. In the context of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Paul and the Corinthians struggled with, even against, one another. So that often Paul felt the need to defend himself, to defend his motivation, to defend his way of relating to the Corinthians. Thus, as a partial defense, in verses 14 and 15 of our passage, Paul alluded to his motivation, and it is this, the love of Christ, he wrote, held me together or holds me together. That, that, that Greek word, echo has that idea of, of holding it together. Some translations have it as constrains. 
Other translations, controls or rules. The love of Christ holds me together. However, this love for Paul was not just simply a deep, profoundly personal experience. It was that. But it was also a very profoundly objective experience. Jesus had died, the one for the many, so that the many also die in order that they might live not for themselves, but for Christ, for him. The implications of this are staggering, and I don't pretend to have plumbed their depths. Paul viewed himself as dead. He had died with Christ and was convinced that he was living the resurrection life in Christ Jesus. This conviction, now in verses 18 to 21 of our passage, this conviction was not a willed mental activity like the little engine that said, I know I can, I know I can. No. This conviction came from God who had reconciled himself to Paul and to the Corinthians through Christ. Because of this reconciliation, a holy God now reconciled with an unholy people. Because of this reconciliation, Paul and the Corinthians had been given the ministry of reconciliation. It is to this ministry the church has been called. We, the church, you, me, we have been called, called to be mediators, called to be reconcilers, called to be conduits, connecting others to our sovereign, gracious creator, the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now, and you may have noticed I skipped over verses 16 and 17. Turning to those verses, Paul then indicated, it is because Jesus died for all. It is because God sought reconciliation through him. It is because we have been given the ministry of reconciliation that we, with Paul and the Corinthians, are no longer to view anyone according to a this world view. If we are in Christ, we are a new creation. Literally, 
the old passed away. Literally, new things have come. In some circles, that line has been misunderstood and misapplied. With the thinking something like this, the old passed away, all things are new. That is not what Paul wrote. Rather, he employed the perfect tense. And if your eyes haven't glazed over before now, the moment I start talking grammar, there's surely to shut down, right? The perfect tense. The perfect tense is a past action that has ongoing significant meaning in the present. A past action with ongoing present meaning. That's the tense Paul used. And his point was this. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, past action, because of that past action, the new is emerging in our world. And it is new. But it's not fully here. Not yet. And this newness, I warned you I wanted to talk about newness, this newness means that we have been given new eyes. Eyes to see our world. Eyes to see one another. Eyes to see ourselves differently. Perhaps even radically. It's not that our new eyes blind us to the world in which we live. Ukraine and many of the other horrors that are a part of our world, a part of our American world even. It's not that we are blind to those. It's not that we are blind to sin, sin in our own lives or sin in the lives of others. Rather, our new eyes allow us to see the beautiful creation that we and others are in spite of our brokenness. If you will, this new creation means that we are at the same time sinners and saints. C.S. Lewis captured this newness, I think, when he wrote, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creation, which if you saw her, him, now, you would strongly be tempted to worship. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these 
are mortal. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. You have never met a mere mortal. Tradition, newness. As you know, today is New Year's Day, right? It hasn't passed yet. But I wonder, rather than viewing this day as, as a moment to sigh and say, oh, we made it through another December, rather than viewing this day as the opportunity to to vow, well, I'm going to eat a little less and drink a little less starting on Wednesday or Thursday. Rather than viewing this day as an opportunity to have your fill of football, I wonder, what would our lives be like if we viewed this day as did the author of Sir Gawain? As a day directing us to the old covenant fulfilled in the new covenant? The new covenant based upon Jesus' cross and empty tomb? What would this day be like if our hearts and minds were focused on his death and resurrection? What would 2023 be like if we viewed the world, ourselves, and one another through Jesus' new eyes, the newness that he is bringing into our world. I wonder, given these questions, I would encourage this challenge, perhaps like the Green Knight, only perhaps, a challenge. Take time today. And some of you are thinking, really? Today? Oh, Stan, where are you? Well, take time today to review the traditions of your life and how these traditions align with those biblical theological traditions that we hold so dear. As you think of 2023, as you think of Valentine's Day, St. Patrick's Day, does anybody celebrate that day here? I don't think so. But anyway, Lent, Palm Sunday, Easter Sunday, Memorial Day, Fourth of July, Labor Day, Halloween, Thanksgiving, Advent, Christmas 2023. Given these traditional moments in our lives, will you view those traditions with the eyes and the newness of Christ? You have never met a mortal person.
mere mortal. Newness, seeing the world through Jesus' eyes. I want to give you a moment to encourage you to think about 2023, to think about traditions, those traditions in your life, to give you a moment even to pray. I don't know how long, a minute, 30 seconds, two minutes, don't worry about that. Take a moment and think, reflect. 2023, what are those traditions that are dear? What are those traditions that need to be altered according to the lens and eyes of Christ? Take a moment and then I will conclude us with prayer. You have never met a mere mortal. In Christ, all things have become new. Let us pray. Gracious and living God, we thank you that you are the one who gives us new eyes. that you are the one that helps us to see what is truly real and what isn't, that you are the one who helps us to realize what is good and what is not. And as we begin what we call a new year, may we do so with you, very much with you. That's our hope, our only hope. Help us to cling to those things that are good and right. Help us to jettison those that are not. Help us to recognize what is worthy of honor and praise and what is not. Help us to see as you see. This we ask in your great and wonderful name. Amen.